Welcome back to the Illinois Agronomy Update. I'm your host, Troy Kazire with Hertz Farm Management here in Genesee, Illinois. And today we have Nick Sider with us. Nick is a uh, field crop entomologist with the, at the Department of Crop Sciences at the University of Illinois. Uh, Nick, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, why don't we, before we get started here, let's, uh, uh, let's take a couple minutes and, and why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and, and what your role is there at the U of I. Sure. So I'm an entomologist by, by training. Um, actually, before I was at University of Illinois, I worked as an extension entomologist down in, in Arkansas. And that, that was pretty interesting because I got to work in cotton, soybean, corn, grain sorghum, worked a lot in grain sorghum, actually. Uh, been here since 2017, and I work on really developing management recommendations for insect pests in corn and soybean. Uh, and, and a lot of my work here tends to focus on corn, and, and it tends to focus on corn rootworm and, and just evaluating control methods for that insect. Um, and, and then, you know, providing those results to, to farmers in the state so that hopefully they can uh, do a better job of managing that insect, which is um, a real challenge due to a, a variety of different issues that I'm, I'm sure we'll touch on in a bit. Sure. Well, I know. Th thanks again for, for taking the time with us today. And that's exactly that, uh, that background that we, uh, that, that, that leads into this discussion. So uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about kind of an insect outlook for, uh, for this season. And depending on, on where you're at here in the Midwest, uh, most everybody that's listening is, I would say, probably at least 50% done with rootworm hatches, uh, you know, depending, or if you move further south, you're probably even closer to, to seeing some adults here before too long. So uh, kind of wanted to start off with the, kind of the rootworm outlook, what you're, what you're anticipating and, and what, uh, what guys need to be thinking about here over the next uh, month or two. Yeah, absolutely. And just like you, you said, so I'm located in, in Champaign to give you the geographic context there. Uh, my colleague was digging around for larvae yesterday in, in our fields and, and found a good number of third instar larvae. Um, so getting pretty close to, to pupating and then hitting adulthood down here. Uh, and as, of course, the, the further north you go, the further behind that's going to be. But really, over the next week or two or three, uh, that's where if we have rootworm damage out there, it's really going to start to become apparent. And, and in particular, um, you know, obviously you can, can dig those plants up and either either float the larvae or, or sort through the, the soil to see how many larvae you have. You'll, you'll see some of that damage starting. The other thing you can do is just take a look and, and see if you're seeing drought stress where you don't expect to see drought stress. And if you're seeing differences out in the field for where you're seeing that above ground, that, that can be a pretty good early indication, especially when we got high, hot, dry conditions like we do here. What, you, you might struggle in Champaign today to find a field that doesn't have a little bit of drought stress in it, but um, it, it's when you see that where you're not expecting it, that, that's a pretty good indication that something has gone on below the ground. Yeah, and that's, you know, obviously there's a lot of variables there. And in a year when we've got excessive moisture, you know, losing a, a good a good portion of a, of a of a root node might might not have that much impact. But but as we look at uh, as as we look at the next few weeks, the the temperatures and the um, and the less than expected rainfall 
uh, for this time of year. Um, that that additional drought stress could really, you know, combined with some uh, with some rootworm damage, could could really start to to show up in the uh, in the form of stress plants. Yeah, yeah, it's not a a great situation that way. Um, it really does sort of. I don't know if it's multiplying, but it, it definitely increases the the stress and ultimately the yield loss that you'll see from corn rootworm. The other thing we see, of course, you know, in recent years, we've had a lot of very wet conditions at this time of year. And when you get those saturated soils while rootworm larvae are hatching, it's actually pretty hard on them. It actually reduces that population pretty heavily. Well, I, I don't think we're going to see a lot of that in Illinois this year. Cert certainly not where I am, um, but it's it just kind of a, a drier season so far. And, and that bodes well for rootworm survival, which, which doesn't necessarily bode well for you if you've got a high rootworm population out in your field. Yeah. And as I recall, uh, this time last year was, was fairly dry up in, in a, a good part of Northern Illinois. Uh, and there was a fair amount of rootworm damage and, and just like you were saying, a, a, a pretty good, pretty good survival percentage of those larvae. So, uh, are you anticipating some, uh, uh, some potential hot spots in, in that, in that area this year? Yeah. And we've seen it in Northern Illinois in particular. I mean, we've seen a trend over the last two, three, four years of increasing populations and, and increasing damage and, and particularly, you know, increasing damage to our, our pyramided BT hybrids compared to what we've seen in the past. Um, I, I don't see any reason why that wouldn't continue this year. It's not a situation that we we really expect to get dramatically better um, without some sort of a dramatic change in how we're able to control that insect. Uh, but so far, you know, the last few years, it's those areas where we have a lot of continuous corn that we've seen the biggest problems. What we haven't seen much of in recent years is a lot of damage to first year corn uh, like we were seeing. And, and you know, of course it's been 15, 20, 25 years ago since we were seeing a lot of that now. Um, but the populations in, in rotated corn have been relatively low and we'll, we'll just have to wait and see if that trend continues this year. So, so yeah, and that's a, that's a, a point that I wanted to bring up. So before we, you know, I'd like to talk about best management practices, but before we do that, um, if you would, can you take just a, a few minutes here and, and talk about the two big uh, variants that we, that we see in certain areas? And um, if you have, you know, kind of a sense of, you know, are those variants increasing in population and, and what geographies are we, are we looking at? Yeah, a absolutely. And so with, with corn rootworm, you've got two, I mean, you've got three species, but you've got two that really give us problems in Illinois. You've got a, a western and a northern corn rootworm. There's also southern corn rootworm. We don't deal with that too terribly often. There's no eastern corn rootworm. Um, so western for years and years has been really the more important species for us uh, through most of the state. And that insect, the, the variant western corn rootworm, is a population that can overcome crop rotation by the female laying her eggs in soybean and in other crops in addition to corn. And so with rootworm, those larvae only survive on corn. 
So historically, this is an insect that was only a problem in continuous corn because the, the adults would lay their eggs in corn. And then if the eggs hatch in soybean the following year, they die. If they don't lay their eggs in soybean, then you're not going to have eggs in the soil uh, for that first year corn. So this variant Western corn rootworm will lay its eggs in soybean in, in addition to corn. And in a geography like East Central Illinois, where about 95 97 maybe percent of the, the landscape is rotated corn and soybean. Uh, that's a pretty good gamble, you, you know, to lay your eggs in soybean in a scenario like that means a pretty high percentage of them are going to survive. Now with northern corn rootworm, and that's a species we've been seeing more of in, in recent years, in, in northern Illinois in particular, uh, they're also able to overcome crop rotation. We don't have as much trouble with rotation-resistant northern corn rootworm, at least not historically, but they do it in a completely different way. So in the case of northern corn rootworm, they'll lay their eggs in corn, and then a percentage of those eggs will hatch in year one, um, a percentage will hatch in year two, a percent will hatch in year three and year four. Uh, so they go through an extended diapause period that allows them to sort of hedge their bets and, and overcome that rotation as control tactic. And one thing that's important to keep in mind there as we talk about some of the other best management practices, when you've got a rotation resistant corn rootworm problem, that does not mean that they're surviving on soybean roots. So regardless of the, the rootworm population that you have, if they hatch into soybean, uh, that larva is going to be unable to feed and it's going to starve to death uh, within hours. No, I appreciate you clarifying that and, and kind of helping everybody understand uh, where from a from a geographic standpoint, where are you seeing the, the soybean variant sort of historically? And, and are we seeing it? Uh, are we seeing it pop up or increase anywhere else? So historically, where that soybean variant, Western corn rootworm has been the strongest, has been real, really in East Central Illinois, um, it, which is also the area of the country, really, where corn soybean one-to-one -one rotation is probably the most intense um, in terms of its percent of the landscape. And so we're talking, you know, like Champaign County, Ford County, um, Macon County in that area here. Uh, that's really where it's been the most intense. Um, it kind of fades out a little bit. It, it fades to the south when you get into areas where the landscape is a little more diverse, so where you've got more forest you've got more wheat, you've got more other crops other than just a straight corn soybean rotation. Uh, that trait doesn't pay off anymore. And then when you get into areas of Northern Illinois where there's more corn after corn, uh, w when there's corn after corn in the system, all of a sudden that's a terrible trait to have, right? Because sure. um, when there's corn after corn, you want to be laying your eggs in corn. Yeah. But, so that's where we've seen it historically. In recent years, we, we really haven't been seeing it. Um, very much at all. We've seen a handful of reports of damage to first-year corn, primarily in northern Illinois, um, in, in areas where, you know, it could be that we have some rotation-resistant northern corn rootworm in there, or it could be that those populations are just so high that they're sort of spilling over um, into the next field. You, you know what I mean? But it, where sure. we've seen that first-year corn damage in recent years and, and again it's been sort of few and far between it hasn't been 
in that traditional area where we've seen a lot of variant western cornerworm pressure. Um, and that gives us kind of a neat dichotomy, an interesting dichotomy where like if you look at our rootworm traps, like our rootworm population monitoring, pretty high numbers, maybe north of 80 in areas with a lot of continuous corn. You drop south of that where it's primarily rotated, uh, almost nothing, you, you know, extremely low numbers to where you, you get the traps back and it's zeros um, in many fields. I was just thinking too, and of course we're a long way, we're a long way away from what we had in 2012. Um, but yeah. uh, I do remember, uh, you know, in 2012 with the with the severe drought that we had, a lot of corn was dying off early, and uh, uh, it, if I remember right, 2013 was a pretty hot year for first year corn uh, and corn rootworm because. Uh, you know, all of those green soybean fields in the in the middle of, of dead cornfields uh, really attracted a lot of those adult beetles. And uh, just, again, looking at, at kind of this potential, um, you know, mild drought anyway, showing up this year, uh, uh, it makes me wonder if, if that might be something that we'll, we'll want to keep an eye on as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And, of course, when we're, when we're in that situation, rootworms probably not the uh... – the, the top focus of a lot of people, but yeah, when, when corn and especially pollinating corn is kind of few, few and far between, or when the corn dries out early, those beetles are going to try to feed on something. They're, they're going to yep. go somewhere and that makes them that much more likely to go um, into soybean or into what, whatever else happens to be green at that time. So let's talk a little bit about best management practices. Um, you know, it's uh, there's there's not a lot we can do once they you know once we've got them and they're in their feeding. But but uh, let's let's talk about what you recommend to guys as far as management. Yeah, sure thing. And, and the the first thing we we recommend right now is especially if you have a problem field uh, to see if you can't rotate that field out of corn. Um, you, you know, get some rotation into that system. And it, it, it's no coincidence that the worst resistance issues we see and the first resistance issues that we see to any particular trait package are in long-term continuous corn fields, often associated with livestock operations where they just, they just need that corn. <laughs> you, you know, they need that corn to, to feed their animals. And so it's a tough sell a lot of times. But getting that rotation into the system is it, the absolute best thing that we can do. Uh, one thing I'm going to recommend is, is that you do some monitoring, not just of what your population is like, but of what performance you have with whether it's a BT trait or an insecticide that you're using so that you understand <clears throat> when you put that out there, what kind of efficacy you're getting. And, and the reason I, I say that is we, we talk about resistance a lot and it's, it's a major issue. And in most of these areas where we're seeing a lot of rootworm damage it's because we've got highly resistant population. But that resistance is not uniform throughout the state. And, and so just because I'm talking about BT resistance, that doesn't mean that a particular, you know, pyramided BT hybrid isn't going to work in your field. What it does mean is that you, you need to monitor that and, and you need to see what you're getting in, in terms of performance on those hybrids. And, and what we usually see uh, with this process, because that damage is occurring below ground, 
you, you know, often it starts to build up for a few years before you really notice it. And, and so it seems like it's come out of nowhere when really it hasn't, you know, really you've been getting increasing levels of pruning the last few years, but maybe, maybe you had plenty of rain, um, you know, maybe you had good conditions and you didn't see it so much in terms of yield loss. Um, so when, when you get into a situation like in a, an effective pyramided BT trait package is the, the best control we have still, to get into a situation where that's not effective anymore, um, where you've got a population that's resistant to those traits, uh, you need to consider an insecticide there. And, and it, you know, what, what I would tell you from that point, if you're using a BT trait, okay, if, if you're using that because of, you know, hybrid selection, whatever it might be, great. But once you get that resistance in the system, um, you, you can't expect that uh, to really give you effective control. So whether it's an insecticide on a trade or, you, you know, from a resistance management standpoint, we'd prefer to see an insecticide on a, on a non-BT corn. Um, that's what you're going to want to do if, if you're in a situation where you have to use continuous corn. Uh, but again, rotation is really going to be the first line of defense we have against this particular sure. test. And one thing to remember, again, even if you're in a resist, rotation-resistant area, it's not just about rotation to protect corn grown the next year. It's rotation to reduce that rootworm population because every egg that hatches into that soybean field is dead. Um, so you're not going to see as high a population, even, in a, even if it's rotation-resistant, if you have a lot of crop rotation, uh, you're not going to see as high a population as you will if we have a lot of continuous corn in that landscape. Sure. So yeah, obviously going to beans is the first option, uh, best option. Um, now just, just for some clarity. So we've, you, you know, you've got a guy that's in a situation where he's, you know, maybe he can't get away from continuous corn or he's not going to get away from continuous corn. Um, you know, sometimes we get questions on, on, you know, when it comes to soil insecticide, I know you mentioned it, uh, as something to add, if you have resistance, um, you know, we get, we get a lot of guys asking, you know, should, you know, should we just put soil insecticide on our pyramided BT hybrid anyway, just as an insurance policy? Um, what, you know, maybe, maybe kind of talk to that, uh, to, to that notion a little bit. Yeah. And the, the thing about it is from a control standpoint, it'll work, you know, it's going to kill rootworms. Um, you're going to get, good control from that. You'll at least get the control that you would have got from an insecticide. From a resistance management standpoint, we're, we're masking the, the problem um, when, when, we, when we do that. And so we're not prolonging the efficacy of those traits. Uh, we're just killing rootworms on top of them. So there, there are situations where, yeah, from an economic standpoint, from a control standpoint, it might be a good thing to do from a resistance management standpoint, it's not going to help us um, really at all. Sure. No, I, and uh, that's why I wanted to, wanted to touch on that so that we had, uh, uh, we had some clarity there for the folks listening. Um, what, just real quick, if you, if, if, and I don't know if you've got this information kind of at your fingertips, but what's the current, uh, uh, what's the current situation with, with resistance? I, I, if I'm correct, I believe all current, bt traits 
uh, well, maybe perhaps not the new RNAi trait that's that just got released this year, but I think all the BT traits have resistance that has developed at the field level at least somewhere. Is that correct? Yeah, that that that's absolutely correct. And you're right on the RNAi. There, there's not resistance out there to that RNAi trait, uh, but of course, it's important to remember that. With with SmartStacks Pro and then with uh, with with Force Seed when it's released, those still have BT traits in them, and they actually rely on that BT trait for for part of their control and and especially part of the the initial control. Um, so still important to understand that situation e- even in areas where you're using, for instance, SmartStacks Pro. Um, what we have in terms of the BT trait resistant situation in, in Illinois. Uh, with the, the Cry-3 proteins, which is your, um, originally it was YieldGuard, Cry-3BB1, and then originally AgriSure rootworm, uh, MCry-3A, and, and then what was originally Herculex root, or excuse me, um, oh, sorry, the, the other protein in Duracade, which is ECRY-3.1AB. Right. Those yep. three have a similar mode of action. We have resistance to those three proteins. I, I can't say it's everywhere in Illinois, but it's everywhere that we've looked. Uh, it's pretty widespread. Um, most fields you look at in Illinois, that protein is probably not bringing a lot to the table for rootworm control. With CRY 34, 35, that's the, the Herculex rootworm, and, and that's the second protein in, in SmartStacks, for instance. It's the second protein in... Chrome, um, it, it's the second protein in, in several uh, other trait packages. Um, there's resistance to that out there. Uh, it's less widespread. Um, so we're, we're getting more from that protein than we are from the others. But there are areas of Illinois where resistance to that protein is pretty doggone prevalent, sure. uh, particularly in, in northern Illinois and really in most of the areas where we've had a lot of rootworm problems in the last couple of years, it's closely tied to the fact that resistance levels to cry 34, 35 are pretty doggone high. Um, another thing to point out here where you have northern corn rootworm in the system. So northern corn rootworm has over, started to overcome those BT traits more recently. And one of the reasons that's important is northern corn rootworm is less susceptible to cry 34, 35 on day one. So as it's overcome that other protein that's in there, it's we, we've seen damage to the pyramided hybrids maybe sooner um, in that process than we did with western corn rootworm. Um, and as we've seen more of that occurring, we've seen higher populations of northern corn rootworm in northern Illinois. Yep. And, and yeah, and that's a, you know, that's, that's really one of the key takeaways of all this is that, you know, whether it's rotation, whether it's insecticide, whether it's BT traits, what, whatever the control technique is, mother nature will eventually find a way around it. And so it's extremely important to, to have a plan and, and to mix and match these tools, uh, you know, where appropriate to, to, sort of delay that uh delay the inevitable yeah yeah that's exactly right and when, when you think about an insect that can you know by overcoming crop rotation it's sort of overcoming its host plant relationship uh 
if it can do that, um, it's going to overcome pretty much anything if you just rely on that one thing. Um, yep. So diversity of control is key. Throwing as many different things at it as you can. Um, yeah, it, absolutely necessary for an insect like mm-hmm. a corn rootworm that is just really, really, really good at at developing resistance. So from a, uh, I guess one last thing before we move on here, what, when, when we talk about uh, adult beetle control, so if, if we see, you know, excessive adult beetle populations, uh, I know it's, it, it's pretty difficult to, to time those insecticide applications and, and to really be effective at adult beetle control uh, from, you know, from my understanding. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of give us your, uh, your thoughts? Yeah, t- typically when we're talking about adult beetle control, we're, we're really focused on that that pollination window, and, and that's really if they're if they're working on those silks, um, working them down to about half an inch, especially if you got hot, dry conditions um, during that pollination window. After that, what we find um, typically with adulticides, like for for larval control to to reduce egg lay, is that one they tend to come back into the field. Um, they tend to be active over a fairly long period of time, longer than that insecticide lasts. Um, and, and then to the, the insecticide doesn't, doesn't last really. So it, it tends to be a pretty mediocre way of reducing populations. Um, but there, there are cases where you get that feeding on the silk um, and you need to protect those silks. Uh, that also happens to be the time when when those beetles are the most concentrated in that field. Um, so if, if you were going to reduce the population, that would be the time that you did it. Uh, but but typically we're looking at that practice as a, a silk protection strategy rather than a population control strategy, um, just because of the nature of the movement of that insect. Sure. Well, before we before we move on, anything else on rootworm that we haven't covered that you that you wanted to bring up? Um, I, I think we hit that pretty hard, and I, I would just remind folks as we're we're in the the end of you know or the middle of the or the end of rootworm hatch, as you mentioned earlier, uh, really good time to to be going out there and kind of getting your initial feel for what sort of rootworm damage you have this year and how well whatever you were doing to control rootworm, how, how well that worked out, um, how effective that was so that you can use that information to, to make decisions next year. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, it's something no one, <laughs> root digs are, aren't something that anyone wants to do, but, but <laughs> it, really, uh, it, it is a key uh, scouting tool to, to understand what you've got, what you're dealing with and, and uh, you know, to, to help you, get that plan together for next year. So that's, you know, this time every year we, we, you know, once we get, once we get a little bit past the hatch here, uh, gentlemen, sharpen your spades. It's uh, uh, <laughs> definitely an important tool. So um, we're kind of past, uh, we're kind of past cutworm now, but, but you mentioned you saw some activity earlier on, um, you know, we're, we're, we're past that, but why don't you just talk a little bit about what you saw with cutworm this year? Yeah, got got a few reports of some fairly high cutworm populations, some stand reduction um, in corn down in sort of that that Effingham County area, like southeast central Illinois. 
Um, and what it was associated with primarily, I, I'm sure there were other instances out there as well. What it was associated with was, was poor control of, of winter annual weeds. And what, what happens with that insect, of course, the, the moths fly in. They're actually attracted to those winter annuals. That's where they'll, they'll lay their eggs. Well, then as that larva gets larger, you know, oftentimes maybe if those winter annuals are controlled late, uh, as those plants die, they're, they're looking for something else to feed on. And so that's when they'll move over to corn. Uh, important to remember that like a, a nice, clean, weed-free cornfield is not a very attractive egg-laying site for those moths. So that's typically what that's associated with. And we, we get a little bit of that every year. Um, seemed like we had a little bit more, at, at least in, in eastern Illinois, um, than we typically do. But it, it wasn't anything for the most part that was like out of hand. Um, but I think in some areas we also had maybe a little worse winter annual weed control than we're used to, you know, maybe trying to either didn't have the chemical that we want, wanted available to us, or we're trying to get by on fewer applications or whatever it may have been. Um, but those two things are usually pretty closely tied together. What about, what about fields with cover crops? Do we, uh, do we see some additional cutworm pressure in, in those typically? Yeah, some of the worst cutworm problems you'll ever see would be after like maybe a clover cover crop, some of these broadleaf cover crops. That, that can happen. It doesn't happen every time. Um, but you can, when it does, you can get some pretty severe stand loss. We've seen a few fields like that the last few years. I, I know one I got a call on last year was in, I believe it was soybean grown after clover, um, you know. So that is, if you've got one of those broadleaf cover crops out there that that's a situation to be on the lookout for uh when you're following a rye cover crop which is what mo most folks that are using cover crops are, are probably using you're more likely to see chewing from armyworm and, and one of the reasons that's it, it's important to make that distinction is if you're talking about soybean for instance armyworm it takes a heck of a population to, to really cause stand loss in in soybean whereas it'll take a much smaller population of cutworm cause that same damage. So in soybean, what we usually see is they'll chew on it. They get kind of sick. They don't do well on soybean. They'll chew on it, make it look kind of ragged for a few days. And, you know, then they'll, they'll go away. Where in, in corn, if you, if you've got armyworm, that can be a pretty serious issue. Uh, if you start to get again, stand loss from that insect. And so in either case, it's when we're losing stand that we should be concerned. So what, you know, obviously, uh, keeping the weeds out of there, you know, it, you know, deterring the moths from, from getting in there to lay their eggs to begin with is, is number one. Um, but if you, if you're, if you're starting to see some damage or, or if, you know, you know, it, it might be a problem, um, is there, you know, is there anything that's, that's very effective from an insecticide treatment or a trait standpoint that's gonna, uh, gonna help once you've already got them? Yeah, so for uh for for black cutworm in particular, um, uh, pyrethroid insecticide with a high water volume tends to do a pretty good job if if you catch them in time. Um, we're talking about you know not a ton of stand loss in, in corn in particular to justify that. Maybe like two or three percent. Um, it, it's time to 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 pull the trigger if you start to see that damage. 
from the, the trait standpoint for both cutworm and armyworm, uh, where you'll get um, the, the best control would be if you have that, that VIP3A protein where there's a, there's a few trait packages that have that in it. Uh, you'll also get some control of, of cutworms if you've got Cry1F, and there, there's a number of above-ground uh, trait packages that have that protein. And just, I guess, not to get too far into the weeds, I, I, I know I'm aware, I'm, I'm not sure exactly where, but I've, I have heard of some Cry1F resistance issues. Um, again, not sure exactly where, if it's in this area. Uh, what about VIP, uh, VIP3? Have we, have we heard of any field resistance to, to that trait? We, we haven't to date, um, and, and hopefully that continues. Uh, so one of the way down in the southern U.S., like down in Texas, they, they've picked up some suspected resistance, not, not in those two species, but to corn earworm uh, with VIP3A. And, and we're actually we're, we're part of a, a sentinel plot network that's monitoring that insect, but with, with black cutworm, with, with true army worm, uh, we, we haven't seen resistance to that protein. Okay. Um, I guess the last one on my list and, and I know it typically doesn't reach threshold levels. It, it kind of looks bad and it tends to scare guys, but, uh, uh, typically not worth, typically not worth treating. And that's Japanese beetle. What, uh, kind of, what are the expectations there? And, and, um, you know, talk a little bit about maybe the thresholds when it, when it uh, makes sense to, to treat Japanese beetle. Yeah, absolutely. And we're, we're going to start seeing them pretty soon here. Um, I would guess it's about that time of year in, in terms of how bad a year it's going to be. It, it's always kind of a, it, it's always like a fun little surprise for me. You know, I, I don't know ahead of time whether it's going to be a bad Japanese beetle year or not. They just, they just sort of show up. It seems like we've had a few, at least where I'm at in Illinois, a few relatively low, years in a row and the big thing to keep in mind both in in corn as a as a silk clipper and in in soybean as a defoliator the big thing you you, you got to do if you're looking at japanese beetle and looking at it as a pest is just make sure you're going into the interior of the field you know make sure you're not just focused on the edge because what what we often see like if an application gets triggered for for japanese beetle uh, often it was real bad on the edge of the field. And if you had gone 10, 15, 20 rows in, uh, there's hardly a beetle to be found. Seems like they, they, they gain up on the edge, especially in, in corn. The other thing they like to do in corn is they'll go in and, and feed on those silks after they've turned brown. Um, and of course you just, you got to remember if you're trying to protect that silk for, for pollination purposes, if you're killing beetles that are feeding on a brown silk, you're, you're just getting revenge on them at that point. You're, you're not actually yeah. helping your cause any, and they, they can eat all the brown silks in the world without doing you any harm. Uh, in soybean, if you talk about a threshold, bear in mind, we're, we're talking like minimum 10% defoliation. If you're in like the heart of seed fill, uh, typically, we're looking more at like 15 or, or 20% defoliation to trigger an application. I've never seen that from Japanese beetle. Um, where, where I've seen that those kind of levels occur is where you have maybe Japanese beetle and then green cloverworm comes in on top of it later. And then like bean leaf beetle comes in and finishes the job at the end of the season. I, I've never seen 
economic defoliation from Japanese beetle in soybean. Uh, and, and in corn, we're talking about those silks being clipped in, in the first five days of, of pollination down to within a half inch of that ear tip. Um, so it takes a lot of that pruning, um, that, that clipping of those silks to, to impact pollination. And, and you want to be a little more aggressive on that if you're in a situation like we could get into this year where it's hot and dry during pollination. Yeah. Um, but more likely to see a problem in, in corn than you are in soybean, not terribly likely to see it in either crop. It's one of those things that tends to look a lot worse than it actually is. Yeah. And I, I'm just sitting here wondering too, and, and I know it's pretty tough to reach those thresholds. I do wonder if maybe those thresholds have shifted a little bit with the high commodity prices, um, you know, and, and, and if that merits any consideration. And, and the other thing that you know, much, much like, you know, getting, getting further into the field and not just the edge, it, it, it's, uh, it's also important, like with soybean defoliation, to, to get down into the canopy as well. Uh, you can have, you can have 30, 40 percent defoliation on the, on the very top layer of leaves and you get into the mid canopy and lower canopy and, and you might not find hardly any damage at all. Yeah, that, both, both of those are great points. And I, I should note that, 10 or 15 percent that I was talking, like 10 percent during seed fill. That that actually is based on updated commodity prices. Okay. So we, I, we, I, we were saying 20 to, to 30 if it's vegetative. Right. Before. Uh, we're still keeping it at 30 for vegetative. Ve vegetative beans defoliation, I mean, you have to almost completely defoliate it to, to really cause yield loss. Um, but, but, but that... 10% during seed fill, that, that's based on our updated and, and very high uh, commodity prices. Okay, um, I appreciate the clarification. That's good to know. Yeah, and, and great, great point on them. Japanese beetles excel at that, right? At staying in the top of the canopy, and then you look down at the lower leaves, and they haven't been touched. Sure. Uh, they, they, they love to do it in the way that's like the most conspicuous possible. You know, sit there on the edge of the field, like gain up on one trifoliate up on the top of the plant and just shred that trifoliate. Yeah. And it is, it's a, 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 if you've got a soybean plant, that's a full 30% defoliated. That's a pretty ugly plant. It's uh, Oh gosh. Yeah. It doesn't, it, it, it takes, you know, a, a lot less defoliation than that can look pretty scary. So. Uh -huh. All right. Well, anything, uh, anything else on, on, on that's kind of top of mind on your list today, Nick? You know, that really covers most of it, especially here for the middle of the season. As we get towards the end of the season, you know, depending on where you're at, you'll want to think about bean leaf beetles feeding on pods. You'll want to think about stink bugs uh, feeding on soybean pods. But we, we've got a month or so to go before we're really going to be getting into that mode. Sure. And that's, yeah, I might think about bringing you back later on this season to, to kind of revisit that. Uh, we do seem to be seeing an increase in stink bug populations uh, in this area, uh, at least anecdotally anyway. Yeah. It, it, uh, yeah. I'd say it's more than anecdotally. Um, we, we've seen more of them really over the last few years. Uh, and, you know, part of that due to maybe some warmer winters, probably part of that due to brown marmorated stink bug um, entering the system, but yeah, the, you, you're, you're, you're not the only one who's noted that, uh, 
definitely more issues in recent years in the Midwest where historically we weren't used to really thinking about stink bugs too much. Sure. Well, Nick, again, thank you for taking the time to, to visit with us today and provide your insight. And, and like I said, if you're willing, we'll, we'll bring you back later in the season to kind of revisit and see where we're at. Um, but, but much appreciated. Oh, yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. You bet. And thanks again to everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time on the next episode of the Illinois Agronomy Update. Thank you. Thank you.